Hey everyone, this week's featured guest is the incredible Chris Lakey. Chris is the Senior Vice President of Creative Sync Licensing at Cobalt Music. Listen as he and Harry delve into the world of sync licensing and chat about the music industry as a whole. Chris provides a wealth of knowledge and is a great source of inspiration and education for students, artists, managers, and other industry professionals. You will not hear these insights anywhere but here on this week's episode of the First Act Podcast. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, cause we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. So yeah, Chris, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So Chris, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about what you do today, like, you know, nowadays, and then we'll get into a little bit of your backstory. Yeah. So uh, currently I'm the senior vice president of Creative Sync at Cobalt Music. I oversee the Los Angeles Creative Sync team. And then I personally pitch uh, creatively music for film and trailers and TV. Nice. All right. So that's a great overview of what you do and you know just for all the people that are listening right now can you tell us and in, in your own words what is creative sync you know we're, we've got a lot of students here who have no idea potentially what that is and so you know what in your opinion what is that yeah so you know as as cobalt is a is a publisher technically we administer publishing we deal with songwriters so obviously there are people behind the scenes who write songs for artists but then all there are artists who write songs. So dealing with the songwriter aspect and dealing with songs, the creative pitching part is, you know, watching TV, films, ads, video, uh, video games, all music that are, that are in that media have been placed there. So what I do is I work with music supervisors and directors and editors and pretty much the, the linchpins between the music and those different media and pitching Cobalt's catalog for those media. So, you know, on any given day, speaking to music supervisors about their needs for their shows, for different scenes, opening in titles, and also getting our writers to write original songs and bespoke work for these projects. So writers, when, when you say like our writers, you mean like Cobalt has their own in-house writers that would write for potentially like an opening theme for a TV show, or they might make the music for a level in a game? Yeah, so... So Cobalt signs songwriters and those songwriters, again, they could be people that you probably may have never heard of who are writing, you know, some of the biggest pop songs or any other songs. And then there are other songwriters that you have heard of. So for instance, we have, we admin publishing for Donald Glover, as people know, as Childish Gambino, or we admin the publishing for The Weeknd. So he, so The Weeknd as a songwriter, we represent that in and the label represents the weekend as the, as the artist. So I'm allowed to pitch that music for different projects. And so how does it work then? So do you have to then like, let's say you're going to pitch the weekend for a project before you pitch him, you need to, you have to speak with his team. Is that right? Correct. So what I, so what we try to do um, and what I'm really big on is especially when we first sign songwriters, I try to meet with them or their management teams just to get a sort of scope of what they want from the sync world. You know, there are some artists who want to just deliver us an album and say, hey, this is going to be my album and just try to get this as many placements as possible. There are other writers 
artists who deliver songs and just continue to deliver songs and say, hey, can you please try to find sync opportunities here? And then the conversation gets even deeper. It's like, well, what do you want to do? Are there any sort of things that you're adverse to? You know, you can be vegan and you don't want to do, you know, advertisements that are advertising, say like McDonald's, Big Macs, or you don't want your songs to be in any scenes that have violence. So it's sort of having that communication and that dialogue, because what I always say is once I have that communication and we continuously have that communication with our writers and or management, then I'm sort of on the front lines and representing their wants and needs and then being able to speak to music supervisors or directors and editors and saying, hey, this artist is really into to this show or, hey, I see that you're working with this producer on this forthcoming Apple Plus series and we have you know, songs and songwriters and our artists that are very interested in that. And how do we connect the dots to make those songs be in those placements? Very cool. So it's a very big relationship business at that point as well, right? Because you need to have established relationships at all of these different companies, particularly companies that will have a budget, right, to pay some of these larger scale songwriters. Yeah, you know, relationships are a bulk of what I do in terms of just maintaining those relationships, building relationships and also finding new relationships. I mean, we're, we're definitely in the brave new world, obviously streaming services that there's so many, there's so much content. So there's so much opportunity for music throughout all of this content. And that, you know, some of the relationships that I've had just over the years, there are new people coming into sort of this game in which I need to know, you know, who is doing music at TikTok? Who is doing music at Snap for their series? Who is doing, you know, music on yeah. large uh, music projects on a larger scale? So relationships are important. It's not only the relationships with the music supervisors, producers, directors, but also my relationships with our artists, with our writers, because again, I need to know sort of what their wants and needs are for their music, for their art in the space of sync. Well, that makes sense that, you know, you need to know all the players, especially you, need, you need, really need to be keeping a finger on the pulse, right? To know who's who at which companies, what projects are coming up so that you can get your, your, um, one of your clients in first. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And a big thing too is, you know, these relationships, they build and they grow. And then I really just want to be on sort of the forefront of knowing as early as possible about projects. And I also want uh, my partners, you know, music supervisors to be informed about our artists and writers as early as possible. If we sign someone who's really cool and there's a trajectory for them, or again, someone who's interested in a certain project or someone who has, who is a songwriter who's going to be working with, you know, big artists or interesting artists, I want to make sure that music supervisors, again, editors, directors, production companies know about these, know about them as early as possible. We always say that we love to have music at least six months early because it takes that long for us to start seeding and really marketing the music, the writer and or the artists to the music supervision community. So I've interviewed people that are, you know, either licensing or publishing adjacent or work directly in that field. And something that I hear a lot is about clearing music and licensing music. Can you talk a little bit about, in your opinion, like how does that work? Um, or really in your experience, how does that work? What's the process like in particular for maybe like an independent artist? Yeah, so clearing music is key and also licensing music is key, especially for what I do. So yes, I do creative, but 
part of doing creative is knowing budgets and honestly knowing how to clear music. There's so many different types of rights now that you need to sort of know, A, the level of the song that you're working with and artists. You know, there's going to be a certain fee that a Fleetwood Mac song commands and there's going to be a certain fee that a Phoenix, the band commands within the space of a certain media type and also rights. So am I clearing things for theatrical only rights or am I clearing songs for all media, which encompasses, as it says, all media. So to be a really good creative, you need to know how to clear music or at least a basic knowledge because most of the times, I will say about 75, 80% of the times when I'm pitching music, there is a budget in mind. So a supervisor will say, we have $15,000 all in. So that's you know for master and publishing for use of a song in this scene. And this is what the scene does. And this is how the, the song is going to be used. So I have to have a knowledge of my catalog. I have to have a knowledge of clearance. I have to have a knowledge of the marketplace to know which songs to actually pitch that music supervisor. Because the number one thing you don't want to do is to pitch songs that won't clear. So... For clearance, that is very, very important. And actually, I really, I'm glad that I actually did clearance before I even started doing creative. So I learned that and I learned how to clear and I learned sort of the minutia of that, that um, vertical of the business. Um, licensing also is very important too, because it, with licensing, it's the actual papering of the entire deal. Right. Um, at the end of the day, any idea, any intellectual property, any, any sort of deal that's made anywhere, outside of music always has to be papered. Usually in the past, it was always papered by attorneys, but because attorney fees can be so much. And also you're sort of dealing with standard form licenses. Mm -hmm. Licensing is important because you actually read and know what's in a contract. So prior to me actually doing clearance, my previous job at Universal Music Publishing was all I did, I did licensing. So I would do red line, go back and forth with business affairs offices, and that was just really important because now I know what a standard license looks like. And from that, you can build a basis and you can, you know, you can get a little bit more intricate in deals. So those two aspects with creative, they all sort of work together in the process of actually licensing a song for a project. And for an independent artist, I would say when it comes to clearance, if you don't know, honestly, you know, say you have, say you're an independent artist and a supervisor reaches out or a clearance company wants to clear one of your songs. Honestly, the best thing to do if you don't know and you don't have, you know, anyone in your circle to ask these questions is to ask the music supervisor, ask the clearance person. Most of the times they're not going to try to jip you or sort of, you know, give you yeah. the runaround. They're probably most of the times going to be honest with you on what the budget is or what they're thinking about clearing your song for. So never be afraid to ask. But obviously, if you have friends who are in the industry, it's always just it's always just good to ask them if you're like an independent artist. Yeah, hundred percent. It's, you know, if you don't know the answer to a question or if you're unsure, you might as well just ask, especially yeah. somebody who, who, who does this day in, day out. So I actually, I, I manage a songwriter, someone I just picked up and I was speaking with an entertainment lawyer, like kind of a friend of mine. And he was saying that it's important that I, instead of actually starting my own publishing house, which is initially what we were thinking, we should try to get him signed to a publisher. What are some of the benefits of that? I have a feeling all of my answers are going to be everything depends because it always does depend. Yeah. So signing to a publisher is great just on sort of the 30,000 foot level of like signing to a publisher as opposed to staying independent. A publisher will usually have a team. 
So whether that's a team that will register songs for you, the team that does what I do, doing creative pitching, maybe the publisher has an A&R team that can help your songwriter, plug them with other songwriters, get them in rooms, writing for other artists is important because let's say you have a writer and a, and a song and it's, you know, it's streaming really well in Israel, but then you also have a sync in Australia and you have a sync coming out of Japan who's collecting all those income streams. So that's one of the benefits overall on having a publisher and going with a publisher. But again, everything just really depends. And I, I'm really, I really think that it, it all really depends on what you want as a songwriter, what you want as a manager for your songwriter and what you want in terms of like your musical career, because there have been many people who've signed to majors and have done really well. There have been people who've kept it independent, have done really well. There are people who have been like independent on the label side, but have a major publisher working them. Some people don't have a publisher, but have a major label. And when I talk to songwriters, when I talk to artists, when I talk to managers, it's really what do you want and how do you surround yourself with the best team to move forward for what you want a short term and long term? That's great to think about. You know, there's a lot of different options out there for artists and for managers. For an independent songwriter who doesn't record their own music, but they write for other artists, is there a certain path that you might recommend? First, I would say the first thing is, and especially if you're proficient in writing, that, that doesn't necessarily mean you have a thousand cuts with a thousand different artists. It just means you're writing a lot. The first thing I always say is just get organized with your catalog. So that means making sure songs are registered, making sure you register with ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC, making sure you, and this sounds like minutia, but this is very important, making sure that you have like an Excel spreadsheet of all of your songs, all of the splits. So, you know, you may have songs that are 100% you. You may have songs where you did co-writes and making sure all those percentages are worked out. And then what I would say is also just look at I'm sort of big on planning and doing sort of like the three month, six month, one year, two year plan. And what does that look like for you as an independent artist? And obviously these things can change, but I really believe like if you actually sort of have a game plan, even when things change, you sort of know the road on where your trajectory or where you see yourself. So I think the very first thing is getting organized. And that's, you know, sitting, working with your songwriter, working with your team, working by yourself to just get organized. And then, yeah, then sort of just plotting out like, okay, I have 50 songs, 13 of which have been cut by artists, four of which I know are coming out and being released. Making sure you're tracking those releases, making sure you're, you're tracking your money when those releases come out, making sure that you're still staying in contact with the label, knowing what their uh, marketing efforts are for those songs. And then in the meantime, it's like, okay, what am I going to do with these other songs? Am I going to be pitching these songs to other people? Continuing to write every day. I think it's very important as a songwriter to continue to write every day. I also think it's really important as a songwriter, and this is me not being a songwriter, but just being around, you know, very successful and proficient songwriters. Uh, Another thing is to read a lot. It expands your vocabulary. That that would sort of be my advice. Uh, And I think, again, if you because I'm just like, if, if, I, if you sort of plan and you have that and you're looking at that every day and you sort of have a, a flow, you get into a flow of how you work. Mm-hmm. You get into a flow of, again, if you're songwriting just a lot every day and trying to craft and hone your skills, you get into a flow of how do you break out of having a writer's block? How do you, what do you need to do to get to the point of peak creativity? Some people have to go for a walk. Others go for a hike. Others have to 
smoke. Others have to walk their dog. Others have to sit and read. Others have to sit in a park and just look and get inspired. So you never know those things until you're actually like are doing them. And yeah, and I, and I always just think that any art, just any art, you always just want to try to perfect your craft. So that's just doing it. Yeah, just doing it, spending that time, really working with different people, stepping outside of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have one more question about this, and then we're going to go into your your backstory, if that's cool. Yeah. So if you're an independent artist that's just starting out now, perhaps, Mm -hmm. like, you know, you don't have, maybe you have a manager or like a very small team, but like you're not signed or anything like that, you know, how can you garner enough credibility that a publisher might take you on? Create your own gravitational pull meaning you want people to notice you, go figure out how to get noticed. And again, this all just depends on the artist. So whether it's, okay, I'm going to release a song every two weeks. And every time I release that song every two weeks, I'm going to have a lyric video with it. With that, I'm also going to do a two-minute story about the song, even like a faux podcast that I'm going to get out. I'm going to put it on these different socials. I'm going to attend clubhouse chats on songwriting just so I'm seen and known. I'm going to go to, I'm going to attend the Guild of Music Supervisors, whatever awards that they have or, 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 or conferences or panel discussions. I'm going to know other songwriters and artists sort of in my world that I would want to work with on an A level and others that I respect who are sort of on my level and reach out to them. I'm going to make sure my team and I have meetings every week about what is our strategy. So again, see, this is all like you create, you're creating the art and you have to create the art and you have to get better at the art, but there's so much more if you want to get noticed. And what happens is you start doing these things and who knows what the timeline on getting noticed is, Right. but you start doing these things. You start collecting streams, you start having fans, you start being able to put together, even if it's a small press report, you're reaching out to your local newspaper, local, whatever, local newspapers, local like uh, bloggers or zines, whatever, to get any sort of coverage that you can. Doing premieres, even on, even on like playlists that only have like 50 followers, whatever. And so then what happens is you're building gravitational pull towards yourself. And then that's how you get noticed. Or if you don't get noticed, you do this for a while and you collect enough of all of these assets, again, along with being, at the end of the day, it's about the music. So the music needs to be strong. Then you and your management sit down. It's like, okay, now now we can approach Cobalt. Now we can reach out to Cobalt's A&R and say, look, this is what we're doing. This is the artist that I'm working with. This is all of the things that they're doing. This is our three months, six month, one year. This is how much money and income we've brought in. This is how much we think that we're going to be bringing in. Even if say a cobalt doesn't sign you, that actually puts you on someone's radar and like for an A&R saying like, I may not be able to do anything with this person, but at minimum, I respect that they came to me professionally and and prepared. Wow. That's, that's like such concrete advice that might be some of the best advice I've heard in terms of how an artist who's independent who has let's say virtually no connections in the entertainment industry how can they how they can actually take initiative and take control and put themselves in the driver's seat of their own career yeah and the thing is is through that process and you know and again everyone's on a different time you can get signed tomorrow and blow up or this may take two three years but what happens is when you do that, also you learn, you learn about yourself, you learn about a little bit about the industry and you're gonna make mistakes, 
but you'd rather those learn from those mistakes sort of earlier on than later on. And also, you know, say if you're a beginning artist and let's just say you're working with, you know, a young, fresh, fresh manager, you guys are sort of learning those things together. Like there's aspects that the manage, manager has to learn. Then there's aspect as a songwriter, you have to learn. Cause as a songwriter, you have to learn now how to write, co-write over zoom. Like that's just a new skill or you have to figure out how to, how to make these, how to make it work. So, and right. you also need to learn how to put together. This is what a marketing plan looks like. Even if it's the smallest thing ever and you're only re you know, reaching out to two bloggers and you may get coverage on some small, whatever. It's like that. All of these things, I think just really help, especially when you're presenting. It's almost like, um, I always say, it's almost like uh, getting a loan from the bank. You need the money, but you have to prove to them that you have the most amazing credit and you're definitely going to pay it back, but you need this money, but you present yourself in the best way possible. These are all my expenses. I pay this. I have a car note. I pay this. It's, the, it's sort of the same sort of ebb and flow, if that makes sense. Yeah. You want to instill confidence and show you that you're professional, that you're taking this seriously. Mm -hmm. Okay. Last question for real. Okay. Yep, yep. Now, so let's say that's the songwriter's role. Then what's the manager's role in all of that? So what, the, what, what can the manager be doing to best set up their client to appear professional and to put the, keep them on the right track other than, you know, meeting the, with them every single week, like you were saying, for strategic brainstorming sessions? Yeah. Number one thing as a manager, I think this is just me. Your first goal should be I need to get my artist writer doing their art 100% of the time and everything else that's up for me to handle. Yeah. So that needs to be number one, because if you, because as a manager, hopefully you truly believe in your writer, you truly believe in your artist, and you truly believe that they are a star. In order for them to be a star, they need to be doing, being on that road 100%. So then for you as a manager, it's looking at your client. If you have, if you're dealing with a songwriter who wants to be in rooms with other songwriters and writing, you have to figure out like, how does that happen? There's so many, and you know, whether it's again, attending music industry panels where it is about songwriters and talking about songwriters. I've sat in on, a, which is pretty cool, a bunch of like clubhouse talks with songwriters or with A&Rs. And even if it's, you're just sitting there, you, you can't communicate with them, but you can go through people's profile and figure out who they are, you know, doing the light, or moderate reach out to other managers who have songwriters. You know, that's just like one aspect. There could be the other aspect where you have a prolific songwriter who is writing a ton of songs and getting a bunch of cuts. You need to make sure all these things are being registered and that money is coming in on time. So knowing what BMI or ASCAP payment schedule is, knowing if there's sinks out there, like how am I gonna collect this money? Also making, again, making sure things are registered, staying very organized. And then, you know, you, as things continue to grow, you start picking up other things that you need to do for your, your client. But I think if you walk into it already, you know, you're passionately into your songwriter and artist. I think the next aspect you have to look at is on a whole, how do I get it? So my songwriter is doing nothing but writing songs every day, waking up, maybe checking in with me and you're like, you're in studio with these three people. Call me if there's anything that you need. This person should be doing this. You guys are working on this track. This person's doing this. You should be working on this track. And then while they're doing that, you're figuring out other things. You're either plotting, you know, their calendar, again, registering songs. Also, 
giving feedback, hopefully the trust that you have with your songwriter or artist as a manager, you need to sometimes tell them that this song is not good or this song is good, but I know you can do better. So try to, you know, rewrite it, you know, doing other knowledge within the industry of like looking at the trajectory of your songwriter and seeing other songwriters that you know that your songwriter can get to and say like, hey, this person I was reading, they did this to sort of help them. Maybe it's something we should look into. So, you know, it's, it's definitely a relationship, but it's definitely also a work relationship. So you have to just make sure you're doing like both. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it, it sounds like, you know, a lot of it is you on a benchmark as well. You're, you know, where you are at now and try to like, you know, set goals. Like, you know, maybe it's like among the stars, right? You can see the trajectory, like you were saying, it's very smart to be taking a bit of an analytical approach, seeing how other songwriters are doing it too. Chris, thanks so much for sharing all of that. I want to jump into your backstory and kind of hear a little bit about, you know, where you're from, how you got into this, you know, into this crazy business to begin with. So are you initially from California? Yeah, initially from Los Angeles. And, you know, I think like everyone really loved music. I think I like really, really loved music when I turned 14. And my dad and my grandfather just had a ton that they had like a ton of records. And so I would just go through and listen to their records. At the time I was really into, still am, but into like hip hop, underground hip hop. And then I remember just playing records like 14, 15. And I was like, wait, this is like the Tribe Called Quest song. Wait, what? And then, you know, then learning about sampling. So that got me really, really interested in music. I like bought turntables. I I could DJ, I didn't like DJ out or anything. All throughout high school. I mean, I had, I don't know, some like, 2,500, 3,000 records now. Wow. Um, yeah. So then I went to University of Southern California. So stayed local. I was a business major my first semester. And then I learned that there was an actual music industry program at USC, yeah. which was very rare at the time. Um, and I was just very curious, like, what is this music industry program? And I love music. And essentially it was just, business, but all geared towards music. So I ended up switching majors to my parents' chagrin at the time, but they were very supportive like a week later. And that program was really good. It was a new program. So it was almost like the teachers were learning as much as we were. And what that actually did was, because there weren't really like professors who studied public, like copyright law and came in to, to like became teachers it was all industry professionals came in to speak to us. So I took a music supervision class. Every class, there was a new music supervisor who came in and just talked to us. Or music law, there would just be music attorneys who you know graduated from USC just come in and teach one class. I'm like, okay, this is copyright. This is mechanical royalties, whatever. And so one thing that I realized early on was I could get straight A's, but really it was gonna be about who I knew. Yes. So my sophomore year, I just was like, I was fortunate enough where like, I didn't sort of need to work. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I'm not going to work. I'm just going to intern as much as humanly possible everywhere. So just throughout college, I interned at MTV, BMG. I wrote for, there was a music magazine up and down the coast for all the sort of coastal schools from like UC Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara on down called Campus Circle. 
it was like an indie magazine, but they never had any sort of hip hop. And since I was working and interning at all of these different companies, I would get like free vinyl and free mer- just, just free CDs at the time. So, so I, so I hit them up and was like, Hey, can I write like cover um, like hip hop? And they were like, great. So I did a ton of just like hip hop reviews and articles wrote for that. Also did college radio for like an amazing show that was like at one 30 in the morning on Fridays and my co-host, she was really into spacey, weird electronic music at the time. And she was like the biggest Bjork fan. So this is like, Bjork was like, who is this crazy lady? And then I play right. underground hip hop. Yeah, so it was, so whatever. So I just always was like, I just need to surround myself with music. And then it was the, my junior year. Yeah, the second semester junior year, I walked, I literally drove and walked into Universal Music Publishing and said, I want an internship here. And it was, they were like, oh, okay, well, give us your resume and like, we'll call you. I mean, I literally just drove and walked in. They called me back and they were like, hey, we have this in the sync department. I had no idea really what sync was. Sync wasn't a huge, it wasn't like as big as it is now in the music industry. Then I just interned there uh, my entire senior year. And then I got offered a job. So I got pretty much put in the sync department, not really sort of knowing exactly what it was about. But did you do this with like Warner, Universal, with Sony? Did you no, do no, all so at, Yeah, at BMG, I was actually in the distribution department when there, when record stores would actually still have like CDs and records. So we would go out to the local record stores and give them like CDs or vinyl. Um, at MTV, I interned for a woman who did she did like all of the MTV event coordination. So the MTV awards, she would like coordinate the after party. So that was cool, obviously. Yeah, like Lionsgate, I was in, I was just in so many different departments. And honestly, what I kind of, I kind of wanted to intern to find out what I didn't want to do. Yeah. Cause I had school as a fallback. I always saw like school as a fallback. Oh, and you know what it was? So he's still one of the most powerful attorneys. Uh, Donald Passman came in to speak at one of the music uh, law classes. And I remember talking to him about sort of what I was interested in. And he told me, and that's what it was. He told me about music publishing. I was like, look, I'm like left brain, right brain. Like I can sit and look at contracts. Cause I was thinking if music didn't work out maybe I'd go to law school. So I could sit, look at contracts. I like all that, but I'm also very musical. I love music. I love vinyl. I love all of this. He's like, you should look at music publishing. Cause you're dealing with songwriters and you, you know, there's so much music with songwriters. And so that's when I researched publishers and walked into UMPG. So senior year intern, they offered me a position and then I started working for them October, like after I graduated and was, and it was great. Do you remember what your interviews were like trying to land these internships or, you know, your, your, your first job? They're not like how they are now where there's probably like a seven step process. And also too, at the time, music publishing on the sync side wasn't as competitive as it is now. Because I mean, to be honest with you, a lot of artists thought having a song in a commercial was selling out at the time. Or why would, my, why would I want my song in a TV show? Because people are still making a lot of money off of CDs. CDs. People were making money off of touring. And then people also were very, very, very protective of their of their brand. So being slandered online for having a song in a Pepsi commercial was like so taboo. Right. 
So really the, where, where I was working or interning, especially at Universal was, it wasn't super competitive because it wasn't really known, I would say. And I, you know, obviously throughout the years, cause it's been what, like 21 years now, me working from Universal to where I am now, it's exponentially, I mean, it's so different now. Everybody wants sync. So you really got in at like the perfect time. Cause you got some years of experience under your belt in college. You quickly realized what you liked, what you didn't like. You even got to meet Donald Passman, who's like a legend in this business because of his book, right? More than the book. Also, he's worked with some huge clients, but like the book, like I remember I, I took a couple of music business courses and like that was the textbook. Read yeah. all you need to know about the, all you need to know in the music industry. Yeah. I, I kept every single book until until you know whenever i graduated but then years later it was a little bit outdated i'm like oh, yeah. this is like reading an old encyclopedia or something <laughs> now it's it's a good book to read because it's like a cross between a textbook and a bit of like a novel because you know he shares some good stories in there so whoever's listening who hasn't read that book yet you should probably buy that book or you know yeah but no so that's really cool so you got in to universal when it wasn't like hyperly competitive to get into publishing in the, in the sense of entry-level jobs, yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure the, the smart people in publishing were buying publishing at the time and they knew that a song's gonna live forever. Yeah. But this is pre-Spotify. This is even pre-iTunes being a huge thing, pre-Napster, obviously. So, you know, probably on a on an overall level, the industry was like, well, we'll just sell CDs and artists will do tours and that's the trajectory of the music industry and making money in the music industry from here until eternity. Because back in the day, albums would sell, they'd do 600,000 like sales of CDs. Right. And, they, and they'd be considered flops. I remember it, like, yeah. it was like, cause we're talking, you know, like I'm 28 now. So you're probably talking like early 2000s, right? Early 2000s, yep. Like right, right before, I guess, I guess like when, when peer to peer streaming became a bit of a thing when it became a, when it became more mainstream when it was when it crossed that threshold of oh my god am i going to be downloading some sort of crazy virus and i don't even know what yeah. a virus is or downloading napster you know? limewire yeah. kaza yeah. or kaza you know all yeah. of it. Yeah. but all yeah. those things happened you know that's all happening while like myspace is happening while artists are like hey I can actually be on an independent label and still make money as happening. So all these things have to be, you know, it's always like the, the perfect storm has to happen. It wasn't just Napster happening. It was that people were on MySpace learning how to code because, and you became more like, oh, okay, yeah, if I click on this link, this is not going to happen because I have some sort of basic knowledge of coding because I want to make my MySpace page look crazy. And also exactly. people and artists reaching out and like, Hey, you're in New York. And I'm here in Australia, we're both on MySpace. We can kind of collaborate. Let's send each other. And then home studios, like, oh, I can do everything out of the box on a laptop. Like, elect, you know, really electronic music helped that too. But it's like, oh, we can actually record and send files. So all of these things were sort of happening at the same time while the music industry on a whole was like, they sort of had tunnel vision. That's why Napster sort of slapped them in the face because they weren't paying attention to what was really bubbling up at the time. So you were what, like 23 or something at this point, mm -hmm. and you see all of this happening, I guess, throughout your twenties. What is your opinion of it? Like, like, you know, you see this whole shift, you're actually working in publishing, which, you know, was a little bit like underground, we'll say at the mm -hmm. time at, compared to where it is now. 
And then you start to see it kind of exploding, right? Because at this point, you know, everyone's kind of worried about, you know, maybe I'm not going to sell albums. Apple starts to unbundle albums and sell singles. And you're here in publishing and, and I guess you're starting to go towards like sync and licensing. Mm-hmm. And people now want to, you know, getting their music placed in a movie or in a commercial is way more accepted than it was five years ago or 10 years yeah. ago. Yeah. So what was your experience there? The rebel in me, because again, I come from underground hip hop and like underground electronic music, like warehouse style, like the, the, the good rebel shit. was like, this shit is great. <laughs> I was like, great. Now people to some level will know all these like cool artists that I know. And then of course they blow up and I'd be like, oh, they're sold out. But um, <laughs> so there was, there was part of me was like, this is cool. And, and, I, and I truly believe it was like, you know, flattening the earth as they say. But the other part of me was because I was working at Universal Music Publishing at the time, one of the, at the time it was like one of the five majors, six majors, there were six majors at the time, I think. I was actually seeing these licensing deals come through because I was doing the paperwork for use of a song in a movie. And I'm like, no one realizes that people are getting like $150,000 for a song to be in a film. Right. And in my mind, I was like, how are you selling out? Because I always am like, if you make art and you put it out to the world, it, you don't own it anymore. Yeah. So unless you're, again, superly adverse to something or someone or actor or scene or something, the more people who see it, the better. And also you're going to get paid. So, I mean, there were every day I was just doing so many deals where it's like $50,000 for this song, for this $20,000 in a TV show. And I think the industry, some in the industry, especially on the publishing side, we were seeing this, but meanwhile, the noise was, oh my God, we're losing money because of, because album sales and records and label and, oh, like we got to stop Napster and shut things down. And here you are in this lucrative part of the business where you're like, the music business not dead. Like, yeah, well, (laughs) it's because the, the, and this is why I'm forever, not forever, but I really like the publishing side is because it is the power of a song. Like, a song itself will live forever. Even an artist who makes the song famous, other artists can make songs famous. Obviously, we see that with covers of songs or right. it's like, who sang this original song in the 50s? It's like, oh, but now so, someone's singing like the power of that song and also just the different income streams the song can see on a songwriter level is, is a lot different than on the artist level. So I was seeing this and I was like, wow, people are like really getting paid and I was like, I'm now understanding why people are saying, make sure you like write your own songs. Because what, what I noticed too, you know, you listen to a lot of artists from the seventies and sixties and eighties who, you know, sold their publishing for like nothing. Or also what I was saying is because I was in the hip hop and especially underground hip hop and sampling, I love the Wu-Tang Clan. Like why does James Brown have 85% of this song? Oh, because they use like, like a drum pattern of his and he could leverage like i'm taking 85 percent if you want right to i'm james brown i like i'm way more known than you or, or his it, it really wasn't it really isn't even being known it's just if you want this song to happen you yeah. sample me and we need to go through a negotiation of my ownership and he you know james brown didn't pin the song and i'm making an example he didn't pin the song that the wu-tang clan made but he's going to be making money off that song yeah and he even, James Brown, I just brought up his example, because he even said that he really made the most money when hip hop 
got big because everyone sampled him and he was happy. He's like, yes, please sample me. Let's yeah. just negotiate it out. So again, the power of the songwriter and the song living beyond just like, cause no one would know certain songs unless they were sampled or used. So, so, you know, from a, from a higher level perspective, one of the skills that you were learning outside of the creative side was negotiation. Yeah. Right. We, we spoke about this, you know, last week when we chatted, but, you know, you were talking a lot about learning how to redline, learning how to read a contract and understand a contract. You know, was that one of the more valuable skills that you learned when you were over at Universal? Yeah. So at Universal for seven years, that's all that I did. I didn't ever do creative and I didn't ever do clearance. I did what well, obviously grew in the ranks. But by the time I left, I was doing licensing for film deals from certain studios. So very high level film deals and also trailer deals. So I love that aspect because again, A, it got me to actually read through contracts and understand just the general basis of reading through a contract. So now me reading a contract for my mortgage is not intimidating or me reading a contract, not that I'm going to read the, the Apple like before you just say accept, but sometimes I just strung through it like, oh, okay, yeah, we're totally giving up all of our privacy. Um, but, <laughs> but you but, have to click accept, otherwise you can't use it. Yeah, anything. yeah. Well, there was actually a funny story. There was an attorney who tried to actually like redline it and send it back, which is funny. But yeah, it was just very good learning experience because just learning that aspect and, and that knowledge and also clearance knowledge are two things that to me travel well in terms of my skill set. I think I do have a very good ear for sync. I do think I do have, you know, I've been at Cobalt for a long time. So I do know our catalog, not like the back of my hand, but I know our catalog very well from our A-list songs down to like newer artists or just interesting songs in our catalog. And I think I do have really good relationships in the music supervision world. Those are really good and great. But if I was ever to just, I was just think like if I've ever to leave the industry, I could, you know, work for the restaurant and just sort of review maybe contracts for local restaurants trying to negotiate a better deal for a certain type of silverware that they all want to do. And yeah, it sounds weird to say, but having that aspect and that knowledge was really, is really like invaluable. Well, not at all, because it's a transferable skill, right? If you understand a contract, you understand a contract. The same way you were saying, if it's a licensing or it's it's a publishing contract, whatever the kind of deal is, you know, whatever the splits are, you know, you could still read your mortgage contract. You could still understand the Apple contract, right? You really just need to take the time to be able to read the contract contract and understand the language that's, that's being used. Yeah. And even like on a 30, and like we keep saying on a, even on like a 30,000 foot level, it, I mean, you don't have to know every single thing at some point. If you're an artist manager, you should have like a, an attorney. But knowing when they're like, oh, okay, so you're going to be, you know, giving this away or they're still trying to charge you breakage. And you're like, what, why is that? So it's just, you're, you're, you're able to understand sort of the conversations and not just necessarily just sign a piece of paper. Right. So, you, you know, we were talking a lot about ownership of catalogs and ownership and of, of songs. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you've seen what hypnosis is, has been doing, buying up, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of catalogs, billions even. What do you, you know, what's your take on that? I think, honestly, they're looking at it as all companies do. You look at it from a financial aspect and the value, again, the value of a song. The value of a hit song, they say, has 20, there are 20,000 income streams. 
you may only be aware of like if we just started really listing things you may only be aware of like 80 of them but a hit song that's a global hit can have 20,000 different income streams so if you are an investor and you're looking to invest whether it's you're investing in bitcoin whether you're investing in real estate whether you're doing investment in certain technologies copyrights are an asset and copyrights can, you know, they, the asset can either grow or decline. And if you just look over time and look at where we are and sort of look at where just we are as a society going, the, the current, where we currently sit right now, it's all about IP and ownership. So whether it's, you know, now the office moves from Netflix to NBC Peacock. Why? Because P NBC Peacock needs that ownership of the office to get people to go to their streaming services. Right. Marvel's not going to do anything else for Netflix. Netflix is buying out content creators. So all of this content's being created for one. And this is just, and this, I'm only speaking on the sync side. I'm not even speaking about Spotify streaming or anything for these companies coming in and buying copyrights. On the sync side, there's so much content and all this content has music in it. So you think that there's, you know, there was a time where I think like right now there are like 800 scripted TV, TV meaning series streaming to shows, which maybe 10 years ago, there was only like 150. And all these companies are investing billions of dollars in this. So there's going to be money to be made. I mean, you have to do your due diligence, but finding copyright assets that are going to grow. And I'm sure they've done projections and, and, you know, looking at the future, but what I think the smart ones are doing are you're not looking at the next 25 years. You're looking at the next hundred years. Right. Like will landslides still be a hit in a hundred years? I say yes. Right. You know, we all know like Beethoven's music, like we just hear it, like whatever, fifth symphony or whatever. There are no like lyrics attached to that. And also there was Beethoven is rolling in his grave right now. Yeah. <laughs> and, but also too, there was no sort of, you know, just the way that we, we've grown and evolved. There was, there's no intellectual property was just thought of differently then. And there's, you know, copyrights or whatnot. And then just even if you look at like copyright law where copyright law was going to end in 50 years and then people get expanded to 75 years and just more expansion and more expansion, which that's good and bad for certain reasons. So you know, I'm pretty sure not only hypnosis, but there are other companies that are just looking at this very, very long-term growth that every year you can count on a steady amount of income coming in. That's probably in their minds going to grow ever so slightly. And then you put teams around it. So then you put sync teams around it. You put like A&R teams around it. And then also people with money look at certain assets do the projections. And if it makes sense, they get in, they go into it. And the reason why music, music stabilized. So Napster scared everybody away. Even streaming, even Spotify scared everybody away. It's like, what? You're going to make small cents on this? But all those cents start adding up. Again, now we have so much content. Sync has become a major player. Now you have other business verticals that people, they're always there, but are more discovered like neighboring rights. So now I think that music is looked at as, you know, a, a not nothing's a safe investment, but this, the industry is stable enough that now major players are coming in to buy.
It's very interesting. And, and it makes me wonder, like, what's the next thing after that? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I think the next thing is there will obviously there'll be a leveling off because there's only so many assets out there. So we're not talking about like endless amounts of songs. And then if you look at, if you sort of look like, look at sort of like a hypnosis. And again, I don't know this, but you know, they're buying, they're buying like traditional standard songs that have like generated money that are not slam dunks, but they are like the most well-known songs and will live through sort of like history and time in my mind. What's going to be interesting is what are going to happen to the assets for songs that are created right now, which still could be very popular, but are they having the stay power that again, a Fleetwood Mac song would have? Right. Because it was a different time. Like we have so many, we have like Spotify, we have so many things grabbing our attention now. And it's like, even those songs are very popular, you know, Michael Jackson sold like 70 million copies of like Thriller. Someone now doing like 10 million streams is like a big deal, but that's in the scope of like but all humanity. They might not have the same sort of longevity is what you're saying. And- uh, it's not even longevity. It's just like, it's yeah. Okay. So longevity, yes. As the word, but the, the key to me is like, are we, are we returning to those songs a lot? Or is it just sort of like the next new hot thing, which is, which is great in terms of like strong uh, songs and, and like, that's why we always return to the eighties. Why we always return to the seventies. Like these songs are always in our mind. And right now in the sync world, especially we're sort of re- returning to the nineties because nineties is like old school now. Yeah. But everyone, you know, the eighties definitely had a sound seventies definitely had a sound. And these songs are continuing to live, you know, whether it's earth, wind and fire, Lionel Richie or whoever Prince. And I'm just like, okay, 2015 songs in 2060, are they going to still have that? gravitas i don't know like like when i think of like like the 2010s i think a lot of like trey songs i obviously think of like drake i think a lot of hip-hop and pop right yeah and then electronic music as well so it's like you know there's a very big like hodgepodge of of different genres because like now like even with like echo nest being bought by spotify and then like Mm -hmm. you know they're going into like subgenres of subgenres of of Mm subgenres you know it's you don't have that same sort of vibe as like 70s did or 80s or 90s did where everything was like, oh yeah, you could identify that's a 90s song or you could identify right off the bat that's a 60s song. Yeah, and ra- you know, and it was like traditional radio, people got on radio, people went out on tours and there was only 30 slots on the radio. Right. So continuously pushed to you, you're going out on like these huge tours and you were just sort of in the zeitgeist and you were, it was a still a, big pond, but the fish were a lot bigger, so to speak. And this is, we're talking about the super A-list songs, whereas now it's like hip hop dominates the, the, the charts. However, if, if we went a hundred years and looked back and looked at say like the Grammys, it's like nowhere to be seen. And it's just like, there's this weird like disconnect. So I'm like, are, is this even gonna live through time? Or is it just for right now? And yeah, you know, like today, like Daft Punk said they broke up. It's like, to me, they were essential in bridging people to electronic music. So yes, like their music will live on forever. Yeah. But I'm like, are there other electronic people who's, and who stuff I personally love, will it like live on forever, whatever it is, whether it's some club stuff or whether it's some like really cool, interesting. So 
you know, again, we're, we're trying to project by 2060 or whatever. It's like, who even knows what the world's going to look like, mm-hmm. but yeah, you know, investments into copyright, the market. It's kind of like has- a safer bet, you know, especially if, you know, where, where there's so much uncertainty, you definitely know at least copyright is going to be around. People are going to need to license music for different things. What I'm really curious about is how can somebody like me learn about the 50,000 revenue streams of a song? Like, how can, how can we do that? Cause if I were, you know, if you and I were to go right now for like the next hour, I'm sure we could probably come up with a hundred. Yeah. But like, um, what, what are I all mean, the look, other ones and how can you learn about them? Yeah. Look, I don't even know the, tw- and this is sort of the quagmire of the music industry. It's like, you're trying to simplify the most, one of the most complicated industries just ever because you're dealing with art you're dealing with like what is the value of art it's like we sort of you know we know the value of steel because if you're going to pay a worker to make some steel we got to factor in his wage factor in the tools factor in the shipping and it's like oh okay this is great but it's like these twenty thousand streams and again or twenty thousand revenue streams that 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 they say can come in from a hit song they're not they're obviously not just revenue streams coming in from America. So it's like, I do not know how Southeast Asia accounts for their equivalent of TikTok, but they have a show on their equivalent of TikTok where people can lip sing the song for 30 seconds and upload it only to, so that is something that, again, there are experts in that for that field who know what the rates are and they're negotiating those rates out. So honestly, a lot of it is just reading trades. It comes over time um, because I'm, you know, I'm sort of doing the day-to-day of my job every day. So, but I also make sure every morning to like read trade magazines, follow people on Twitter, read like articles like, oh, okay, this is cool. Like, oh, this is sort of going on. Like what, what is this new technology? And then, you know, luckily I work at Cobalt, like I can ask somebody at Cobalt, like, hey, if Clubhouse starts having, I mean, one of my favorite Clubhouse, this guy just spins lo-fi and I'm like, should somebody be getting paid? I'm not going to tell him because I want him to like, like keep doing it. <laughs> but it's, um, I think it's just, you just have to just read about the industry and stay on top of it. There's no, we're, we're out of school. There's no lesson plan here. Right. Yeah. So it's just like, you probably know some things that would blow my mind that I've probably never thought of and vice versa. Um, it's just- Well, it's my just background's in it. music tech. Like my, my whole thing is a little bit different than like, you know, you're like, when I look at you, I'm like, wow, you're like, you're like a real expert in like publishing and licensing. Cause like, it's a, it's a domain that I don't know that much about. Mm-hmm. And like, that's why like, you know, I've, I've asked some questions really just for me. Yeah. Um, on, on this episode, which, which, you know, I guess that's a luxury you have when you're the host, right? <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. And thanks for having me. It was, uh, it was great for my first podcast. I think. Hey everyone. Just wanted to check back in and shout all of you out who are taking the time to check out the podcast, especially those of you who have been sharing it with your friends and writing me such nice messages on Apple podcasts, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you or someone you know has an awesome story that you think should be shared with the world, feel free to write me directly on any of our socials at The First Act Podcast. Until then, stay safe.